Welcome to Creating Equity in an AI-Enabled World, conversations about the ethical issues raised by the intersections of artificial intelligence technologies and us. I'm Lori Burns McRobbie, University Fellow in the Center of Excellence for Women and Technology. Each episode of this podcast series will engage members of the IU community in discussion about how we should think about AI in the real world, how it affects all of us, and more importantly, how we can use these technologies to create a more equitable world. Episode three of this podcast series, Whose Business Is It Anyway?, raised a lot of questions about how organizations of every kind, private companies, nonprofits, universities, governmental agencies, religious organizations, etc., should manage and protect the data they collect, whether it's about employees, customers, partners, or others. What data is collected and for what purpose? How is it used? What recourse do employees have if data is used inappropriately or not adequately protected? What about customers? The conversation with Angie Raymond and Stephanie Moore from the Kelly School pointed to how critical it is that organizations have appropriate policies, well-managed data collection and use procedures, and transparency mechanisms so that individuals know how information about them is handled. These same issues were raised in the very first episode of our series as well. In this new episode, we want to explore exactly what those policies, procedures, and mechanisms look like, how they should be developed with equity in mind, and how they are, or should be, communicated. We'll also gain some insight into how Indiana University itself manages the data it needs to provide services to students, faculty, staff, and its external constituencies. Joining me today are Ben Motes, Assistant Professor in Psychological and Brain Sciences, Director of the Change Lab, and a researcher in e-learning. Julie Aders oversees the Data Administration Program at IU, working under the direction of IU's Chief Privacy Officer, Chief Information Security Officer, and the University Data Management Council. Welcome, Ben and Julie. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. Good. Yes. Thanks, Lori. Let's start with a little more background on each of you. You both look at data privacy and the use of data for research and analysis and learning systems, among many other things. But you come from different perspectives. Ben, can you talk more about your research and the Change Lab? It'd be my pleasure. So I'm a good old-fashioned experimental psychologist who's had an awakening with the availability of student data. So a lot of student learning is happening in online learning settings. And as somebody who's interested in studying human learning, one of the things that I think is most exciting is the opportunity to conduct our research not in contrived laboratory settings, but instead in the environments where learning is actually occurring. And given the opportunity for doing experimental psychology with, for example, like large data resources where students are conducting classwork and assignments and studying on their own in large learning platforms. We might even be able to manipulate their experiences to be able to better understand what might work effectively, how we might help students learn in their own contexts and personalize to their preferences. So in the Change Lab, what we do is we conduct experimental research using student learning environments by actually manipulating their experiences and trying to discover what services, what uh, I don't know, simulations, what learning activities, what materials might help. 
So in these experiments, just as a question, these uh, experiments that you're doing are real-life students in real-life laboratory settings, or are they using, are they looking more at, at kind of data models? I do both. Um, but yeah, one of the virtues, I think, of um, the opportunities afforded by large-scale digital learning platforms is the opportunity to do it with real students in the context of their real coursework that actually has some bearing on their future success and what they learn. And it's worth saying I don't do this um, covertly. So um, I do have scruples and I believe that students should know whether they're participating in an experiment and also should have agency in whether they do or don't want to participate in that experiment. So, yeah, I work very closely with our IRB and also increasingly with um, the Data Security Council to be able to better understand how we might um, do this in a responsible way. So I think it really is in the interests of the end users, of the students, to have um, people like teachers and researchers collaborate to be able to find out what the most effective learning resources and learning materials might be. I mean, you'd want that, right? In any service, you want people to be trying to improve it. And the question is more, how do we do that responsibly? Right, right. Julie, you are at the center of how IU handles the enormous amount of data associated with systems across the university. Um, can you describe your role further and how you work with others like Ben to ensure appropriate use? Yes, um, I oversee the data management program at IU, and my role is to work with our data stewards to ensure that privacy and security is considered upfront for every application and service we offer uh, that will collect personal information. So that includes data requests, as like what Ben was speaking about. But it also includes our vended partners, um, as many of the tools are serviced by cloud vendors providing services like email storage, productivity and course tools, proctoring, you name it. Uh, we have an extensive review process and contract negotiations to protect IU data. Um, every vendor we partner with that will be storing personal information is required to go through the privacy and security review and sign a contract that prevents them from using our data for secondary purposes, such as sharing or selling our data to third parties. And and what about, uh, that includes just free applications that individuals have, like Google, Microsoft accounts? Yeah, so many people, uh, they don't understand that a standard free Google and Microsoft account, you sign up for it, uh, you're basically signing that you will provide that data um, to other third parties beyond Microsoft and Google. Um, we have protections in the IU contracts that do not allow these companies to share your information with other third parties for marketing or research. Um, so yeah, without, it's important to yeah. use the tools that have been approved. Right. Yeah, right, because of the, the protections that are there. Um, what So how are data requests handled? Can you say more about data request processes? Yeah. So in addition to reviewing the, the products and services, the cloud services, we review the data requests. Um, certainly people are wanting the data that are in these systems and services, um, such as requests for learning management data uh, that Ben mentioned. And we've been able to partner with Ben. Uh, he's been a great partner to help researchers know where to go to request e-learning data. Uh, and this allows us to document the project and review things like consent requirements, how the data will be de-identified. So while faculty do have access to Canvas data, 
for their own courses and are able to use the data to improve the effectiveness of the instruction or their coursework. Uh, they don't have access to data from other instructors' courses, um, and they can't just use their own data for other types of research without going through a full review. Yeah. Yeah, so those protections are in place too. Yeah. And Ben, you've been <laughs> both a, you're both a producer of these uh, this research, but also a consumer of the policies. Very much so, and an appreciator of the policies too. So, yeah, what we wouldn't want is the Wild West where everybody has access to whatever data they want, and we also don't want the other side of the spectrum where people just can't get any access to data when they have a valid use case. Um, and there really is an amazing kind of treasure trove of data available increasingly as courses moved online during COVID and have stayed online in many ways. So from the perspective of somebody who might be interested in student learning processes, we've got, you know, 90,000 students across the IU system, which really represents a spectacularly diverse population of people who are all clicking on assignments in the same types of environments. So in Canvas um, from computers. So there is a strong opportunity to be able to better understand what goes on when a student sets out to learn something. And it's a really valuable thing at Indiana University that we've started to create a bridge between the people who could benefit from being able to have access to these data and the data resources themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there are many uh, examples, instances of how AI technologies and personal data are in use in academic environments like classrooms and labs, online course systems, uh, and systems designed to support student learning are among the most complex um, not the only ones, but among the most complex, uh, raise a lot of ethical and equity-related questions. Um, maybe we could start by talking about proctoring systems, um, which are uh, certainly in place. What would you – question to both of you. Uh, what are the potential biases and and how are they identified uh, to, to make sure that people are experiencing equitable uh, treatment? Well, proctoring systems are, are heavily biased uh, towards behaviors we call normal. Um, one group's normal isn't going to be every group's. So, for instance, an anxious, stu an anxious student mm -hmm. uh, may get flagged because they're looking around the room. Um, the proctoring itself may cause anxiety, and that actually encourages behaviors the software would consider an issue and flag. So facial detection algorithms along with the camera's difficulty recognizing darker skin tones can lead to problems with pretest identity uh, verification. Um, proctoring software flagging tends to misfire for darker skin tones or low light settings. And because of this, it struggles to identify when the student is in the frame. So here at IU, we, we've recognized this. And our faculty have to go through training um, any faculty that wants to use proctoring services must provide prior notice in the syllabus. Um, they need to implement practice tests prior to the real thing so that students have the ability to show their surrounding. Uh, if any issues are going to arise, they can do that in a practice setting versus when the exam, when it's exam time. Um, and then offer alternative testing locations or options if that software is going to cause anxiety or be a problem. Uh, these are some of the, the practices we've put into place. Um, yeah, and uh, this had to have been a huge issue during COVID. Um, did COVID, I, I suspect, well, let me just ask, 
were were you sort of headed in this direction and COVID accelerated what you were doing or how how did the pandemic yes, change absolutely. what you were doing? <laughs> it did. You know, traditional programs, uh, dentistry, health, that would be in person, found found the need to, to have online proctoring services during this time. And so it definitely accelerated uh, what we were doing to, to put into place um, these practices. And then also one important note is proctoring service cannot be used alone to identify cheating or academic misconduct. Um, this requires human intervention. So these are some of the other practices we put into place during COVID, making sure that every unit that plans to use it understands that there has to be further investigation, questions with the students, a review board looks um, at the issues that have been flagged. And so this isn't done in a vacuum. We're not just mm-hmm. using these tools and, and assuming that, that there's been misconduct. Right. And uh, this obviously requires uh, a lot of faculty training, too, which certainly was also probably an impact during COVID, but it's been going on uh, before. Are there there specific faculty training programs that are triggered when a faculty member asks for data or or asks to use, for example, a proctoring system, or is that baked into kind of other, other aspects of a faculty member's life? So we're actually working on a full... Uh, training in Canvas, um, but we do have an attestation that they have to sign uh, so that they understand their responsibilities, and we've provided language that can go in the syllabus for any course that's going to have this. So just having that notice up front, I think, is very helpful. Um, absolutely getting that notice the first week of classes so that students are aware that this is going to be a product used. And if they have issues, they can discuss it with the faculty and come up with an alternate method. Yeah, yeah great. Um, ben, maybe you want to talk a little more about learning systems specifically um, in terms of, of inherent bias and, and what can be done to ameliorate that. Yeah, so the student learning systems that we use at IU, like the learning management system, are technology tools. And technology is une- unevenly distributed across the student population. One of the challenges with, um, yeah, with being able to make any use of these data, whether it's automated use or even just studying it from a manual perspective as a researcher, is being able to appreciate those kind of heterogeneities across different types of students and even across different types of classes. Um, one of the studies that's made use of um, e-learning data that came through security review and yeah, we delivered to a, a faculty member was a study on device usage. So this was exploring how different types of students might use laptops or desktop computers or mobile devices when accessing their schoolwork and how that might affect you know what they learn from the schoolwork and how successful they are in their courses. And it's not my research, so I should be I should add caveats that this is secondhand knowledge. But nevertheless, one of the most interesting findings was that this particular faculty member was in computer science. And in computer science, students were much more likely to use laptops and desktops than mobile devices, especially in comparison with other domains. So for example, in arts and humanities, students are much more likely to use mobile devices when making incidental use of Canvas. This is really consequential for data because In fact, when you're looking at data that comes out of the Canvas mobile device, it's fundamentally different, the structure and the patterns and the actions that are recorded than if somebody's using a laptop or a desktop. 
So yeah, our view of what the students, um, I don't know, activity is, our view of, for example, if we wanted to create an index of their engagement, might be fundamentally tied to what domain they're studying, what device they're using. There's all sorts of interesting things we could talk about with respect to the digital divide and whether students are, are, have, there's, have equity in terms of what devices mm-hmm. they're using to access their schoolwork. Yeah, and this definitely sings through in the data. Yeah, interesting. And you're this is this is a rel- you this is an area of research, a line of research you've been engaged in for a while and uh, continue to pursue. And I, are you again? Is this are you able to see uh, data across larger student populations than perhaps those at IU? Or where are you? Where's your Where's your research taking you in this? So I'd, I'd say that our, our effort to really better understand what we could glean from Canvas data started around 2015. This is when Indiana University adopted Canvas. And also Canvas had a major perk in terms of the ability to be able to do analyses of data. It was much better standardized than our previous LMS. One of the first things that we discovered when looking at Canvas data at scale was, you know, the maybe the first analyses that you might imagine a guy like me to do is like, okay, what? How can we predict whether students are going to pass a class? And glaring it at you in this analysis, if you were to run it, is whether students are turning in their assignments is the biggest predictor of whether they'll pass the class. This is like pretty stupid and simple. Like if you can't pass the class unless you're turning in your assignments. But this begs the question of, okay, well, what can we do about it? So one of the things that we've explored at IU is the use of automated systems for um, sending students nudges, for reminding students about their upcoming assignments. Another interesting finding from those first looks from Canvas is that students are awash in assignments. There are students who have up to 120 assignments a semester. This is at least one assignment every workday. And it's not the case that these are all structured at the same time. So they're sprinkled throughout the day. And I can't fully imagine how any student can keep track of this. It's very different from how it was when I was a student. And when I think about the tools that I use to be able to keep track of my schedule, it includes things like appointment reminders and calendar notifications. So I believed at the time and I still do believe that there would be real value in being able to develop a suite of automated student reminders for the things that students might otherwise have difficulty keeping track of because they've become so, I don't know, so common and frequent that they're hard to keep track of in the student experience. So at the time we made Boost, which was maybe a good model of AI and education. This made – it got access to students' coursework. Students – not all students. Students had to download the app and give the app permission to do this. So it was all based on student volunteer and agency. Students also explicitly gave permission or not to people like me to be able to do research on the data that they generated in the app. And it kind of chugged along in the background, gave students push notifications when they might be missing an upcoming assignment that has a deadline within the next, for example, 24 hours. So there are really strong opportunities and I think bright opportunities for us to be able to make rigorous use of student data to be able to develop these kinds of AI services that might actually benefit those those who stand to benefit from it. Yeah, it's just a matter of asking ourselves how can we do this in a way that's responsible so that we're not um, – yeah, misrepresenting students, for example, by building models that are based on a small segment of the population or only one particular kind of student. And also so that we're doing it above the table so that it's something that everybody can look at and there's transparency. Students can decide whether they want the benefits or not. And there's no penalty if they decide that they don't want to. Another question about the uh, flagging students, this idea of predicting whether a student's going to pass a yeah. class, it, it begs a question perhaps about at what point does that data get used to do an intervention? 
uh, say, by a, a advisor, a professor. Can you say more about how that aspect of things is being handled? Absolutely. I I actually think that that's the most interesting part of AI research is not how you build the model, but what you do with it. And this final question of how you close the loop, how you do something with the insight that you've gathered from the data is I think, I don't know, it's, it's oftentimes punted in, until the very end, but it's perhaps one of the most important starting questions. And there's a range of interventions that I can see in the landscape of student data access. One of the most innocuous ones, but also most kind of questionable ones, is course recommendations. So we might know a priori that because a student has taken these courses, they might be likely to succeed in some courses and less likely, likely to succeed in other courses. And students might be really interested in this insight, so they might look to see what the recommendations are for their shopping cart, for example. And yet that's really problematic. What we want at a place like Indiana University or any higher education institution is to encourage growth and exploration and um, maybe even to find out things that you wouldn't otherwise come across. So the fact that this is a system that's steering students in the direction of what they might study could raise real problems. And yet the people who are interested in course recommendations, I guess the, the good thing about this are, is that they're really concerned about these questions. And I do see a lot of work out there trying to explore whether course recommendations can be tailored so that students are given more opportunities to grow and that it's, it's the off-the-wall courses that might also be surfaced where students might be likely to um, do well given what we know about them. Yeah, that's just course recommendations. I mean, there's a wide range of interventions that people talk about dis deploying, ranging from mindset interventions to reminders like I've discussed to motivational interventions. And yeah, all these are interesting things that might or might not be triggered by, um, yeah, something that a student's doing in the background. And the final thing I'll say about interventions is that one of the most interesting and most promising methods is to have the intervention be human so that the human can be sensitive to whether this is a misclassification. So one of the programs that's going on on one of the IU campuses is the exploration of advising alerts. So whether we can trigger an advisor to reach out to the student based on what we know about their tendency to submit assignments or based on the amount of time they spend in Canvas. And we're very sensitive to the idea that maybe a student's just having a bad day or maybe they went on vacation and we shouldn't be submitting a flag for them that might have real consequences, but there might be benefits to getting a phone call from an advisor or getting a, a text message. And yeah, we're similarly concerned about whether these themselves might diagnostically label a student. So we're delicate about the ways that we reach out to students. But yeah, the intervention is definitely a consequential thing to think about when you're thinking about what the what the mechanism is here. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just, I can't help but think about the, the human interventions that I've experienced going all the way back to high school that were frankly inappropriate <laughs> and when the AI didn't exist at all. So, I mean, these are, these are very human questions at the same time. They also, obviously, the, the use of AI really um, heightens how important it is to, to grapple with them. And it goes back to your earlier question for Julie that training is actually super important here, that the person who's been given the task of reaching out to the student really needs to understand that the thing that's telling them to reach out to the student hasn't diagnosed the student as being a particular way and that they really need to approach it from kind of an open mind about yeah how we can provide help without telling a student how they are. Yeah, yeah, kind of a, a growth mindset all the way around, right? Um. Julie, IU has a very well-developed policy environment, one that I think I've known, uh, personally known a little bit about, but have learned obviously a lot more in preparation for this episode. It's, it's, it's really very impressive. 
Um, to tell us more about what those policies are, or maybe a few of them, because I know there are many, and where they can be found. Uh, and I should mention here quickly that we will be posting links um, to a lot of this policy information alongside the episode when it um, when it is uh, uh, published on the CWIT website. Um, I'll also be interested to find out how you think IU is doing relative to its uh, particularly Big Ten peers, but its, its peers across higher education. We have a mature program here at IU um, in line with our peer institutions across the Big Ten. I sit on a data, data governance, a Big Ten data governance group. And so we're grappling with these issues uh, when we meet. But we paved a path here at IU early on for others on how to review products and services, especially AI or sensitive data-related vended services during the procurement phase, uh, which has served us well the last 10 years as cloud services exploded. In addition, we appointed a uh, data steward role over learning management and analytics to help with the governance issues we're discussing. So she, um, Emily Oaks, uh, we appointed her in 2019. And that has been a a big uh, help in terms of dealing with the governance issues, uh, the proctoring, best practices, um, data set review. Uh, She's been been key in in having this role. Um, I've recommended to other institutions to consider having this because it's just it's something that's not going away. We're going to continue to see explosion in the learning management area. Mm -hmm. And it's really helped us. Um, In addition, she's able to to implement settings in these products that follow the privacy by design methodology. So not all products come with privacy in mind. (laughs) In fact, it's usually the opposite. So she's She's able to get in there and, you know, make sure that IU is doing what we can uh, to improve the products uh, as as we implement them. Uh, but some of the policies, I'll just mention a few. Um, the disclosure of data to third parties that I mentioned before, DMO2, that ensures we're reviewing every vended service um, and making sure those contract protections and safeguards are in place. Uh, it takes a while uh, to do that, but... It's been important for us to to have this in place with the cloud service revolution. Um, Then our website privacy notice policy that requires all website owners and app owners, uh, ISPP24, that's been key to make sure that people are identifying what information they're collecting and for what purpose and how users can opt out. Um, It's important for them to be able to provide that on, on everything um, and then IT07, the, the privacy of electronic information, this has been a longstanding policy but has served us well as we moved into cloud services that were collecting action type of data, log data. Um, at some institutions, that's just uh, listed under FERPA information. But here at IU, uh, we review this not only from the system owner perspective – and the data manager, but also through the policy office. So this is different, um, being able to look at this LMS metadata and have more thoughtful conversations about appropriate use uh, when this data can be released uh, and for projects like Ben's talking about, for advising or being able to to do additional research where we're de-identifying the data 
um, this has been key for us to have these additional reviews. Yeah. And I'm sure you would say there's always room for improvement, but where, what, what are you working on? I mean, are there particular things that you're um, focused on in terms of development of these policies? Yeah, I, I definitely, there's always room for improvement. I mean, things are always changing. Um, and I think our peer institutions would agree that we need to continue to provide more transparency on how the data is being used. Um, and better communicate on what these approved research projects are and how others can actually participate. Um, so making sure that that information is available for those who, who want to participate in the ongoing projects. Um, and then just continuing to get the word out about the importance of using approved services that have these contract protections in place. Um, you know, because as I mentioned, the free products that require consumers to share and sell their data, we don't want those products being a part of our IU um, model. So we want to make sure we're using the services that have went through the approval. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask uh, both of you a, a sort of a question about, you know, the average user consumer of these. What, what should each of us be doing as users and consumers, I'm mean, obviously complying with the policies, but are there are there other ways in which we can engage more directly um, in thinking about these questions? And and I'm thinking particularly too about the degree to which you know when we think about AI and uh, its its increasing impact on us, um, very often that comes with a, a degree of anxiety. <laughs> you know, it's it's we think of it as something that's a a, a bit threatening. Um, and we, and that's particularly exacerbated when we hear these stories about how uh, it's it's used inappropriately or some bad outcome happens. But but almost always, one hopes those bad outcomes turn into an improvement, turn into learning. So how can we as individuals uh, help with that? And either of you want to think about that? Might even be a research question for you, Ben. I don't know. In a sense, yeah. I mean, there there are a lot of people who are thinking about how we can better involve. Yeah, as you'd say, the average user in these discussions. And it's a really critical thing. Um, it's critical for a number of reasons. One is simple transparency and trust. Like it would be absurd for an average teacher or student to just kind of like find out that there are these things going on and and, and then trust that we're doing it appropriately. Um, so, yeah, their participation in this discussion is really important. And I'll add something on top of that as well, especially for any listeners who are um, into measurement or research, to actually become engaged not just in the conversation but also in the practice of exploring these data is really valuable. I think you said before that there's real risk of potential for harm when somebody's deploying an untested AI tool. I think that a bigger risk is that we won't even know if there's harm because it's really hard to look at outcomes in a large ecosystem like the Indiana University student landscape. There's actually been research that's shown that a lot of research doesn't include like outs, you know, like the final outcome of whether students benefit from this. It's more of a question of how often was the tool deployed or something like this and did the users who use the tool a lot tend to also be successful. Um, which themselves aren't super informative. So another school 
um, just up the road, uh, I'm not going to say what its name is, was one of the first to explore a, a learning analytics in, uh, intervention. Um, and the way that they did this, this was rendered as a traffic signal. So if a student, based on their grades and amount of time in the LMS and everything, was predicted to be at risk of failing, they were shown a red traffic light. And if they were otherwise OK, they were shown a green traffic light. And setting aside the obvious miscue that we have students who are performing poorly being told to stop, it's also the case that when exploring the benefits of this service, they decided to exclude anybody who had withdrawn from the university, which meant that students who withdrew from the university because of the traffic signal, those students weren't included in the analysis. And what's more, when you take out students who are about to withdraw, it makes the service seem beneficial because performance in those courses actually seemed to improve. So we really need – I mean this is a funny caricature of a bad analysis, but it really does demonstrate the need for having people who care about measurement to become better involved in this. And that's really one of the things that I want to advocate for with the e-learning research and practice lab is that, yeah, we shouldn't just kind of like allow data to be used by vendors to be able to develop services without our sort of participation in it. I think that there's a lot of benefits that faculty of higher education can serve to be able to say, hey, I'm going to use my understanding of inquiry and of data analysis to be able to contribute constructively to what's possible with these data resources. Yeah, yeah, very important. Julie? So what I would recommend is just stay alert, uh, making sure, you know, that that you investigate what services and, and products you're willing to um, install um, and that you're looking at the configuration settings because as I mentioned before a lot of times those settings are not privacy aware um, you might have control in the product but that is not what the default setting would be and then I, I would encourage um, the last week of January is always data privacy week and the NSA the, the National Cybersecurity Alliance always has great resources uh, for how you can take an active role protecting your privacy, even your personal privacy. So they offer information on managing your privacy settings in several popular products and services. And I would recommend just going out there and checking it out. Um, it's at staysafeonline.org. Yeah. And I know in our very first episode of this series, uh, Beth Playley from the Luddy School was um, a participant, and she really spoke strongly to the need for more federal legislation uh, to help put a bit more pressure on vendors uh, to do things. But I think that's also something that as individuals, presumably, we can we can also support. Absolutely. We would love to see that federal legislation um, come down the pike. Uh, we, we do have some state laws that have helped. But to get that uh, pressure on the vendors – so that they're more transparent uh, with the algorithms and development methods they're using, and also that they provide flexible options. Because some people are willing to provide more information and give up some of the privacy for certain features, and that's okay. But having that ability to choose whether you want to provide that information and still be able to use the service uh, that's important. And getting that federal privacy legislation, I think, will put some pressure on the vendors to give us more options. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben and Julie, thank you so much for 
joining me on this episode. It's been great talking with both of you. I've learned a lot. I know our listeners will, too, and appreciate all the work that you're both doing, and I'm excited to see what you both do next. Thanks very much. Thank you. I'm so excited by the invitation. This is great. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Center of Excellence for Women in Technology on the IU Bloomington campus. Production support is provided by film, television, and digital production student Lily Cherubom and the IU Media School. Communications and administrative support is provided by the Center. And original music for this series was composed by IU Jacobs School of Music student Alex Tedrow. I'm Lori Burns-McRobbie. Thanks for listening.